This is the cutest little penguin ever. <laughs> uh, we're going to go ahead and dismiss the kiddos, uh, if that's something that we have today. Um, so I have been asked to preach today, and you guys will know that because I'm wearing a collar. Did you guys know they still make shirts with collars? Yeah. I had to go way back in my closet. Wow. Um, but I'd love to start by praying. Lord in heaven, God, God, thank you for today, God. Thank you for our wonderful lives, God, the beautiful state that we live in, God. Um, thank you for always providing for us, Father. And thank you for dying for us to provide a way to be with you. God, we ask that you just be in this room with us today, that you speak through me, Father. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we've been doing a series called Faith Inspired By. Um, and I have been thinking about what inspired my faith. And honestly, I think it's provision. I think it's how often God has provided for me. So we've got a bunch of scriptures we're going to go through today. So I'm going to pass out some scriptures that people can read. Um, and then we'll jump right into it. So if someone put their finger in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Just one finger? Just one. I mean, it depends how big your Bible is, but yeah. 3, 1 through 6. Can someone else do Genesis 16, 1 through 5? Steve's got that one. Can somebody do Genesis 22, 1 through 8? Larry's got that. Can somebody do, big one, Genesis 45, 22 through 46, 6? Katie, looking at you. Uh, can someone do 1 Samuel 17, 33 through 40? Shelby? And then Monica, do you want to do 1 Corinthians 21, 1 through 3, and then verse 8? 1 Corinthians 21. 1 through 3, and then verse 8. Okay, so I know Halloween's coming up. Larry was fired up about Halloween. Guys, I married Katie. We celebrate Halloween all year round. We're still very much in the throes of Halloween because of candy. That's all. It's, it has nothing to do with costumes. It's just candy. It's only been two weeks. Don't you dare judge us, Shelby. Um, and I think one of the things that really hit me this year was the gluttony associated with Halloween. I don't know if any of you guys know who Mark Rover is. He's a YouTuber. And he did this whole video on people stealing Halloween candy from the bowl that says, like, please take one. And he just had this video of all these, like, fat little five-year-olds just ransacking these bowls. And as a fat 30-something-year-old, I would also ransack those bowls. And it made me want to yell at myself and somewhat yell at those kids. But also it made me really introspective of what causes people to act like that. When I was a kid, I absolutely did the same thing. And even more embarrassingly, on the way home from church every Sunday, we used to go to Hannaford's, the grocery store, and they had a take a cookie if you're under 13. And me and my siblings, every Sunday, we would ransack that bowl into our teenage years. And I remember going into that car with cargo pants pockets stuffed with cookies. But why? It's one thing to say you like sugar. You're trying to earn that diabetes. Sure. Um, but what drives that greed? What drives that gluttony? And the more I was thinking about it this week, I think what drives it more than anything is fear of scarcity. And how differently would kids react on Halloween night if they knew the next morning they could go out and eat as much candy as they wanted to? They knew the day after that they'd go out and eat as much candy too. They knew the day after that the same. Instead, kids act like that, grown-ups act like that, because I'm worried tomorrow I won't have enough candy. And I have to get as much as I can tonight. 
so that I still have some tomorrow. And I think it's that scarcity mindset that really drives that action. That there isn't enough to go around. That I need to get as much as I can because I might not get any tomorrow. What if those kids were promised that they would have candy tomorrow by someone they trusted? How would they act differently? Would they act differently? And how can we reflect on that as people in our own lives and in that same fight of the scarcity mindset? I think there's two ways to view the world. There's a viewpoint where God will provide. I am provided for. That this outlook would trust that God provides for all of my needs completely. That God is in control. I'm just along for the ride. This would drive trust. It would drive peace. And it would drive contentment. It's very hard to want things that you don't have if you trust that God has given you everything that you need. As we go through this lesson today, let's think about the characteristics of this outlook and what the outcomes of this outlook are. The second thing we're going to look at today is the other mindset, the scarcity mindset, the I need to take all of the Snickers out of the bowl mindset. This outlook is that God won't slash can't provide for my needs, or at least not all of them, so I have to provide for myself. This mindset means that there's a control vacuum. And so I must try to control as much as I can. This would certainly tend to drive fear, anxiety, and coveting. People have what I want. I'm going to covet that. So as we go through today, let's think about those characteristics. Let's think about the outcomes of that mentality. And let's get into it. So in the Bible, we have a lot of examples of both. So let's jump to the first example of someone living in the scarcity mindset with Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. But God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave something to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Awesome. Thanks, Margaret. What was Eve afraid of? Scarcity. Scarcity. She was worried she wouldn't have enough of wisdom. This woman had everything that she ever could have wanted. But she had the scarcity mindset, that it wasn't enough, that she needed a little bit more. What was the outcome of that decision? What was the outcome of that mindset? Sin. Things went downhill. By trying to control what she shouldn't have tried to control, she lost the little control that she had. By taking God out of the driver's seat, 
she realized she was trying to drive thousands of years before the learner's permit were a thing. She did not know how to drive. And I think that I can get in that same, I can push myself into the driver's seat in the same way. How would it have been different had Eve just trusted in God's provision? Let's jump to Genesis 16, 1 through 5. Let's look at Abraham and Hagar. I forget who had that one. Steve. Now Sarai, or Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, which she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. She slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I have suffered. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hand, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Awesome. Thank you. Again, we see, we see an example of someone acting in the scarcity mindset. What strikes me about this is if you scroll up in your Bible or go to the previous page, the paragraph or two before, what does God promise Abraham? The creator of the world shows up to this random dude and says, I'm going to give you children that numer beyond the stars in the sky, that numer beyond the grains of sand, sand, uh, grains of sand or whatever. And Abraham says, no, but we can use my servant as my inheritance, as my inheritor. And God said, no, you idiot. I'm going to do it through you. Next paragraph. Abraham says, wait, wait, maybe I have to do it again. And how often do I get caught in that same trap? He feared God would not provide him so that he had to do it himself. How would it have been different if Abraham had trusted God? So many of the issues in the Middle East right now come from Ishmael which was Hagar's son. We are still living through the outcome of Adam and Eve's decision to not trust God and Abraham and Hagar's decision to not trust God. How many times have we hurt the world through not trusting God's provision? Luckily, Abraham would learn. So let's go on to Genesis 21, 1 through 8. And see how Abraham learned to get out of this methodology. Is that you, Larry? 22? Yes. 22, 1 through 8. Yes. Okay. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. 
On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, carried, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up, said to his father Abram, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Awesome. Thanks, Larry. Abraham started to get it. What differences do we see here versus the last paragraph that we looked at about the same man? He trusted God. He trusted God. There's two things that really jump out to me. One, he says, then we will come back to you. <clears throat> That's a crazy sentence. Right. God's telling you to go kill your son, and then you're going to tell your friend, don't worry, we're both going to come back. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of faith yeah. to say that. And the second thing that jumps out is the word provide. He used the word provide. God will provide the ram. There was obviously a huge mind shift change where he went from the scarcity mindset, I've got to do it myself, to God will literally provide. And so what happened between those two mindsets that caused this change? Well, I think if we just think about Abraham's life, between the time where he failed to see God's provision and the time where he saw God's provision, what happened? couple things. So A, three angels showed up, told Sarah she would get pregnant within a year. It happened. He saw God destroy two massive cities in a pretty spectacular way, right after God said he was going to do that. He saw God stop all women in Amimelech's household from conceiving. And then he saw, he saw his son being born to an old lady, which is a miracle I'm getting to see here in February. Wow. <laughs> she wasn't paying attention. <laughs> there was a lot of miracles that Abraham saw. And it allowed him to trust in God. It allowed him to trust in the provision and get out of the scarcity mindset. I think the other thing that helped Abraham, and we'll see through the rest of the scriptures, is he started to trust the story. God has a story. If you read the Old Testament, it's chronological. I mean, not technically, but God has priorities, he has stories, he has plots for our lives, for the lives of the people in the Bible. And Abraham started to trust the story. Right? And when you trust the story, you understand that it's not what's happening today, it's what's happening next year. And that's what we're going to see. So let's, let's go on to Jacob. So Isaac had the son Jacob, and we don't have a passage for this yet, but let's look at Jacob's life. In Genesis 25, we won't turn turn there, Jacob quite literally hoards the food to not share it with his starving brother in order to sell it to him. There were so many resources. Isaac was incredibly rich. Jacob wanted more than his fair share of his inheritance, and so he quite literally hoarded to take advantage. In 27, His mom comes to him and pressures him into stealing his brother's birthright. 
the line of Abraham was literally so blessed it was beyond measure. The line of Abraham was given the entire land of Canaan. And instead of being content with half of it as one of Isaac's, one of Isaac's two sons, Jacob sought to take the whole thing. Instead of trusting in the provision of 50% of the land of Israel, he wanted to take the whole thing. He had, so as the younger son, he, he sought to steal not only the inheritance, but also the blessing. Surely he knew that he would have been fine otherwise. But he didn't trust and he had a scarcity mindset. And so in Genesis 45, 22, later on in life, we see a different side of Jacob. I forgot who had that one as well. Katie. I'm going to one. Uh, 46, 6. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of cloth. Uh, uh, Genesis 45, 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Uh, going to 46.6. So Israel set out all, with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Awesome. Thanks, babe. We see a difference. Jacob trusted in God, and he went to Egypt. But why was he afraid? Because he got his son back. He shouldn't have been afraid to go. So what would have led Jacob to be afraid to go to Egypt? I think that if you look at what Abraham was told by God, he was told, your children's children will be sent to a place where they're strangers in land for 400 years. And I think Jacob was smart enough to do the math and figure out that he was sending his kids to a land where they'd be strangers for 400 years. I think that's why he was afraid. I don't know why I would ever be afraid to go visit my son who I thought was dead, unless that was in the back of my mind. But God tells him, trust in the story. I've got you. You've got to go to Egypt. So all this stuff has to happen so that you can come out and your, your children will take over the land of Israel. Sometimes it's not just about 
God providing for us. It's about God providing for our family, our futures, our legacies. And I think Jacob was afraid because of that. But we see a change. How much of a difference of an outlook is that? And again, what caused it? And I think if we look at Jacob's life, the difference between the person who he was when he stole to maintain his own control versus the person that willingly sent him and his children and his grandchildren to a land where they'd be enslaved at some point is his interactions with God. And I think if we look at Jacob, he had a couple big ones. Speaking to God face to face in a dream, I think that's some crazy stuff. That would probably change who I am as a person. Then wrestling with God, I mean, I love jiu-jitsu, but I don't know if I'd wrestle God. Pretty sure I'd lose. I got tapped out multiple times by a girl Shelby side, so God would definitely beat me. <laughs> the hardship of losing Joseph and then getting him back. Imagine how much that would change you as a person. Your favorite son, I know people don't have favorites. My parents love me the most, obviously, but... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But having your favorite son stolen from you, thinking he's dead for 30 years, and then getting him back, what does that do to you as a person? And what does that do to your trust in God? And you know, I, how hard that must have been to lose Joseph. But how encouraging is that to your faith? You know, and I think about the hard stuff in my life. So... First world problems. My wife and I looked for a house for two years. And we literally could not get a stinking house. We lost all over the place. People weren't interested in two poor Vermonters asking to buy their house for well under market value. And it was really frustrating. Also, my wife wanted things like electricity and being on a road and all that. <laughs> there were some sweet hunting camps in our, in our price range. But you know what? We prayed for 10 very specific things. Like, we prayed for the road that it would be on. And God answered our prayer with all 10 things. That did so much to my faith. You know, about a year ago, I lost my job. And I was without work for eight months, and it was tough. And we just kept praying and kept praying and not getting our prayers answered. And it was, it was hard. It was stressful. Yeah. We just bought a house. <laughs> but we prayed for five very specific things. And God answered all five. What did that do to our faith? Now I'm not saying that we can just pray for miracles and call them down at will. Because that's, that's not promised. But I am saying when we go through hardship, it gives us the opportunity to trust in God more. And it gives us the opportunity, like Jacob, to see the bigger picture and to see God's provision. What hardships has God led you into so that you have the opportunity to grow in his control? So that you have the opportunity to stop trying to control it yourself? Unfortunately, Fortunately, we have a lot of people in the Bible that have done both. 
and we can learn from them. So let's let's move on to Elijah. So in 1 Kings 18, again, we won't go there, we see Elijah. Um, the story in uh, 1 Kings 18 is when he was on top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And instead of reading the whole thing, I'm just going to paraphrase, but I encourage you guys to go back and read it later. So basically, um, the prophets of Baal were challenged by Elijah to you build an altar, I'll build an altar, you put some beef on it, I'll put some beef on it, you tell your God to set it on fire, I'll tell my God to set it on fire. And we really see the duality of approaches. Because the prophets of Baal screamed and shouted, they cut themselves, they danced, they did all of these crazy things to make it seem like they had an effect. If you ever got a paper cut, it's the worst. <laughs> I would not cut myself to make this thing catch on fire unless I actually thought that they were related. And unless I thought that I was somehow causing that to be on fire, that is them trying to control the situation. But what does Elijah do? Elijah goes the other way. And he trusts in God so much that he said, you know what, let's douse it with water. Okay, douse it with water again. Okay, do it a third time. How much faith is that? And then, instead of trying to control it, instead of trying to have impassioned prayer, instead of having to be fasting or do anything, he just said, hey God, do your thing. And it bursts into flames. The duality of that situation <clears throat> strikes me. On one hand, people are trying to be in control. On the other hand, Elijah's trusting in God. And I can struggle with that. You know, we were we were trying to get pregnant, and I really wanted a boy. I really wanted a boy, guys. Um, and there are some very small statistical things that you can do to increase your chance of having a boy. There are. And I really wanted to do those things. How dumb is that? <laughs> Seriously. I'm, a, I'm getting real, guys. How dumb is that? That gets me, for real. For real. I was trying to control what it was. I should have just prayed. Now, luckily, we did pray. We're having a boy. Amen. <laughs> but how dumb was it that I tried to control it? Elijah went the other way, and he poured water on it. Had I had faith, we would have done the things that would statistically give you a girl and still prayed for a boy. Now, I don't know if I got enough faith for that. <laughs> but that's what we would have done. That's what Elijah did. Why? Why did Elijah have that mindset? I think there were things that Elijah witnessed and faith that Elijah had that let him know that God was in control. And it didn't have to be fancy. He just had to ask. Let's jump to David and Goliath, who had 1 Samuel 17, 33-40. Show. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. 
Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I was not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the boat. Awesome. Thanks, Shelby. Again, we see the duality of approaches. Saul saw this punk kid who was shorter than all of his brothers. And he saw this giant man in all of his armor. And Saul thought, I need to control. I need to give this kid as many advantages as I can. Let's give him armor. Let's give him swords. Let's give him all of this stuff. He tried to swing the odds in his favor. What did David see? God's favor. David saw God's provision. God's provided for me so many other times. He'll provide for me again. You know, I think that he learned from the past trials that he went through with God to trust in his provision. Now, he did grab five stones, so I guess he didn't have perfect faith because he only needed one. But we're going to give it to him. That man was large. <laughs> right? Um, think of how well that faith in God's provision would continue to serve David. Think of all the things that David went through as a person that he continued to trust in God for. This is like the first main story we have of David. <clears throat> think of him running from Saul, being king getting chased around by various enemies, winning countless battles that he should have lost. Think of how much he trusted his provision. But unfortunately, while people can grow in their provision, like Jacob did, they can also lose it. And what do we see from David at the end of his life? In 1 Corinthians 21, 1-3, and then verse 8. Who had that one? Someone want to read? Okay. First Corinthians 21, 1 through 3, and then verse 8. Uh, sorry, First Chronicles. I was going to say Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. David's in Corinthians. Yeah. <laughs> And then jump down to eight. 
Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Awesome. Thanks, Evan. We see a man who followed God faithfully, who trusted in God's provision, who trusted in God's control, who didn't have the scarcity mindset, suddenly get caught with the scarcity bug. He wanted to know how many troops he had. He wanted to take a measure of his own wealth, of his own security, of his own provision. How often do I get trapped in that? Things are going so well, something goes sideways, I need to control. It's fine to let Jesus take the wheel when the road is straight. But when we start going into that turn, I want to grab control. You know, we've, we've been having so many house projects in being done at the house. And we had our roof put on, and everything was great. And we prayed, God, give us the roofers you want us to use. Like, we, like we were very faithful by it. The other night it starts raining, we start getting some leakage. A faithful man would pray. A man that trusts God's control and provision would pray. I went and looked up my contract to see if it was covered. How dumb is that? The water's running out of our walls, and instead of praying, I'm reading a contract to see if it's on me or it's on them to cover it. That's scarcity mindset. Literally two nights ago. So maybe we shouldn't listen to anything I've said. <laughs> if I was trusting in God more, it would have been about prayer. And how often do we get caught in the day-to-day problems and immediately wrestle for control? You know, I think the biggest example of this is the Israelites. And I think when God gave the Israelites the Sabbath day, yes, it was absolutely a day of rest, 100%. It was also a test. Because in an agricultural society, your food is directly related to how much time you put into that food. And Katie and I are gardeners, and we'd be real thin gardeners if it wasn't for the grocery store. Because we are not that good. Pat and Carolyn would be fine. Jeanette would be fine. The rest of us will starve to death. <laughs> it is exactly proportional to the amount of work you put in. And God told them, you can only work six out of seven days. Not only that, you can only work six out of seven years. Hmm. How much faith does it take to do that? To say, I'm only going to use six-sevenths of my land to grow crops. But we could have 17% more, or whatever the math is. That takes a lot of faith. And I think God was using this as a test for them. And how often in the Old Testament do we see God rebuking the Israelites for giving up on the Sabbath day? For not trusting in him. You know, the same exact story happened with the manna. God gave these people manna. And he said, hey, I'll give it to you today. I'm going to give it to you tomorrow. I'm going to give it to you the day after that. Only take what you need for today. How many people ran out and grabbed extra? (laughs) It's true. Exactly. It's exactly like the candy. And I think we see this over and over again. So let's go to our last scripture. Let's go to Matthew 6, 18 through 24. And I'll read this one. Uh, 
Yeah, starting in 18. Nope, starting in 19. I lied. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where steel thieves do not break in and steal. For there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, with, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Who is Jesus speaking to right now? The crowds. And we read from other places, these weren't the rich people following him. These weren't the one percenters following him. These were poor, sick, homeless, ill people with injuries, with families, with dirty clothes. He wasn't talking to Americans. We all live very dress lives. He was talking to the downtrodden. You know, we also have to look at this in context. Two paragraphs before this, he was teaching them how to pray. And in the prayer, he mentioned, you know, pray for what you need. Give us today our daily bread. So he's not telling them not to worry about what we need to eat today, or at least not to request that, right? And then after that, he talked about fasting. Between prayer and this, he talked about fasting. And again, fasting is typically, God, please give me what I want. I really want this real bad. So again, I don't think he's saying, don't try at all. Instead, he's saying not to chase those things, to not focus on those things. And I think it breaks down perfectly in 19 through 21. Providing for ourselves is never going to work. We can have all the control we want. We can strive to grid scarcity in our own lives all we want. Moths and thieves. It's not going to work out in the end anyways. And so instead, we need to rely on his control. And you know, what, what strict, struck me weird about this passage when I started looking at this week is 22 through 23. The whole thing about the eyes... And if the eyes are dark, then you're dark. And if the eyes are light, then you're light. I thought that was about watching your eyes. Don't look at girls. Don't watch TV that you shouldn't watch. You know, don't watch that movie that's, you know, violent or whatever. That's what I always thought this passage was. And maybe that's because sometimes I just read a passage without looking on either sides of it. But that wouldn't make sense because it doesn't go along with anything else that Jesus is talking about. And so what I think he's talking about is there's two ways to look at things. You either look at things with your eyes full of light, that God is in control, that you are provided for, or you look at things with darkness, that there's scarcity, that you have to control. And I think that ties in much better with what he's talking about. And I think how often... I look at things with the dark eyes. Where I see lack of control, I see scarcity of resources. And so I try to hoard and control. Which inevitably will lead to stress and anxiety. Because I can't control anything. 
the outlook of that literally makes the world darker. It makes it scarier, and it can color our days in dreariness. And I think that's why Jesus said, if the light is darkness, how great is that darkness? And on the flip side, I think if you can look at it through his provision, if you could see him in control in all things, then we can have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. And the outlook will literally encourage us and inspire us and lighten our hearts. Literally. I think this passage is literal. And then it goes on to you can't serve two masters. In 24, you cannot serve two masters. You either love God or you love money. And I think it's not even the word love. I think it's you will be you will try to control. You will serve or you will rely on either God or money. And I think that's powerful. And then it goes on to the passage, and we won't go there, but it goes right into the passage about anxiety. And God says, don't worry. I've got you. Don't worry about what you're wearing. All of these things will be given if you seek him first, if you rely on him. And how differently would that viewpoint paint our lives? The world is scary. I didn't really start paying attention to the news until we got a kid on the way. Now I'm like, oh my goodness, World War III is going to happen? Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, global warming? How scary is this world? How scary are our lives? Guys, our roof is leaking. <laughs> it's not great. My pregnant wife woke up at 1130 with water dripping out the ceiling. Not a great time for anybody, right? She was actually great. Um, but that makes it less funny. So she was terrible. <laughs> How differently would we look at the world? Would we get so stressed about the news? Would we let this, the news color our lives? Would we let the darkness of the world into our mental space? I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about these things, but we should see God's control. You know, how do we act differently as a church? if we didn't need to control it ourselves? How would I act differently about my health if I wasn't constantly worried about I got rabies or whatever? I'm a hypochondriac. You know, what about personal wealth? How would I treat that differently? I think it comes down to how we view things and if we trust in his provision. Now, things I'm not saying. There is... Am I saying that we should just spend all of our money on gear, backpacking gear, and fun toys? Maybe. Maybe that's what I'm saying. I don't know. <laughs> right? Like, the Proverbs are pretty clear that the grasshopper is an idiot for not saving, and the ant's smart because he's saving. Right? Very clear in the Bible. I'm also not saying that only good things will ever happen to us if we trust in God. You can discount that numerous ways in the scriptures. I'm also not saying that we can just call down miracles at will from God. Also not saying that. But I do think we have the opportunity to see and to trust and to know that God's in control in our everyday lives. <laughs> what are the characteristics of a life that believes that God is in control? Peace. What are the outcomes of that? 
what are the actions that you would do if you did that, if you lived like that? I think for me, I'd be more generous. I think if I trusted that I was going to get candy tomorrow, I'd feel fine sharing my candy today. I don't think Katie would share candy, period. But I think a lot of people <laughs> would do so. On the flip side, what are the characteristics of the scarcity mindset? And what are the outcomes? How does that person live his life? He probably tries to hoard resources. He probably is really stressed about everything that's happening all the time. And he probably has a sweet bank account. Probably. But is that what's important? You know, I think there's a spectrum that we're all on. We either don't trust in God's provision, we're learning to trust in God's provision, we do trust in God's provision, or we're forgetting to trust in God's provision. And I think we're all on that spectrum. And so I think in closing, we have to get a viewpoint on provision, and we have to figure out ways to have our faith be inspired by his provision. You know, I think looking through what we did, we have to recall what we've seen in our own lives like Abraham did. We have to have face-to-face encounters with God like Jacob did, even if it's just reading our Bible constantly. You know, we have to rely on God's control instead of our own actions like Elijah. We have to remember what he's done for us in the past like David. And we have to trust in his love and power and willingness to act. Our God has promised to provide us with everything we need. And our God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, God, God, thank you for providing for us, God. God, thank you for just being in control, being bigger than us, for being more powerful than us, for being smarter than us, God. Lord, thank you that we don't have to worry about what's going on in our lives, God. That you've got us, that you're in control. Thank you that my roof is leaking, because it's not my problem, God. We pray that you fix it. God, um, I just pray that we can just draw closer to you and trust more and more in your control. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.